Turn, if you would, to the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. We are getting close to the end. You will notice that uh, I have my phone up here today. My uh, son and daughter-in-law are at the hospital right now. Going to give birth to some child sometime today. Probably not in the next 30 minutes, but you never know. So this will be Luther Dixon Scarborough. You may not know, but my first name is actually Luther. But I go by my middle name. It's not that funny. My son's first name is Luther, but he doesn't go by Luther. My dad's name was Luther, and he went by Luther. His dad's was Luther, and he went by Luther. His father was Luther Dixon, and this son will be Luther Dixon Scarborough, and will actually go by Luther. So, All that's happening as we speak. We have returned to the narrative of the final weeks of Jesus' life on earth. We spent a lot of time getting distracted with teaching and with dealing with the Pharisees, and he blasted them, and now he has returned, Matthew has returned to the narrative. So last week we did the Lord's Supper, we had a discussion about the different views of the Lord's Supper and etc., and Jesus told the disciples, they're going to come get me and all of you are going to desert me. And Peter says, no way, Jose, I am not going to leave no matter what happens. But the key to that passage was not, you're going to desert me, but afterwards, come find me. He was telling them that no matter how far away they stray, he's always going to be ready to receive them back. So, picking up in uh, wherever we are. Verse 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going... A little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Before we get too far into this, let's remind ourselves of just a little bit of theology. We have talked about this repeatedly through the book of Matthew. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He has all the attributes of God. He is also a human. He has a human nature. He has a divine nature merged together in the person of Jesus Christ. It is interesting because there are lots of people who don't understand that. I told you one time I was teaching a lesson here in this church and happened to mention that Jesus was the Son of God. And the next week I had two people come up to me and said, wait a minute, did you say Jesus was God? I said, yes. He's God. And that produced an interesting discussion regarding the Trinity, etc. Okay? Jesus is God and he is human. As such, he suffers all of the temptations that we as human beings have to deal with. Yet, we're told in the book of Hebrews, he did it without ever sinning. Now, 
you may think, well, it would be easy to resist temptation if you were God. I would contend that Jesus suffered more temptation than you and I ever do. Why? Well, one reason is simply this. I get tempted with something, and I get tempted, and I get tempted, and I get tempted, and at some point I just throw up my hands and I give in to the temptation. I get angry when I shouldn't. I do something that I ought not do because it's so hard fighting the temptation. I have no idea how much temptation there would actually be had I persevered to the end. Jesus went all the way to the end with every temptation, yet never gave in to the temptation. But he was human as we are. We're going to see today in this passage in the garden the fact that Jesus is struggling with the same kinds of fears and concerns that you and I do, except for the fact he's not going to sin. His prayer is simply this. If it is possible, if there is a plan B, God, now is the time to do it. How many of us can relate to that? We get into the middle of difficult times, difficult circumstances, and we say, God, do something about it. But oftentimes, we usually stop right there. It's as if we're looking at God saying, God, I don't know what your plan is, but your plan's bad. I've got a better one. Do it my way. I mean, let's face it. What's the point of prayer if we can't get God to do what we want him to do, right? We're going to have a discussion about that at some length. Let's back up just a little bit. Jesus knows what's coming. How did he know what's coming? Well, he's been telling the disciples repeatedly, I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be beaten. I am going to be tried. I am going to die. And then I'm going to be resurrected. He has told them that. He has told them why he is going to do it. I am going to do it to bear the sins of the world. Did they believe it? I don't know. We've had that discussion many, many times. But Jesus knew what was going to come. How did he know that? Did his divine nature reveal it to him? Or or was his communion with the Father so perfect that God spoke to him and said, here's where you're going, and he says, yes, sir, yes, sir. I think that's the answer. I wouldn't discount the first answer, though. It could be true. So, he knows what is coming, and he, the human Jesus Christ, is very worried about it. Why? Well, it should be rather obvious. No, it's going to hurt. No human being wants to suffer what he knows he's going to have to suffer. I don't know how often in his daily life he would have encountered the Roman form of execution, of crucifying someone on the cross. But if you saw it once, you would see that it wasn't, well, today we would simply refer to it as cruel and unusual punishment. 
I think that was the purpose of it. I actually read an article this week in a history magazine talking about how ruthless the Romans were. It is interesting, when I was growing up, I was always interested in military history. And I thought the Romans were the coolest dudes out there. I mean, they conquered the world, they were great. I mean, this is fabulous. But you have to understand, they did it by killing a lot of people. This particular article was about Carthage and the fact that they went through a series of wars with Carthage. And finally they said, give us your young people as hostages and we won't attack you. So they got the young people and they attacked them. And then they killed the young people. I mean, why not, right? They were ruthless people. Remember that because some of them are going to show up here in a moment. Jesus knew what that was going to look like. And it says he was struggling in his soul because he knew what was going to come. You and I would do exactly the same thing. But I would also contend that Jesus has something else in his mind. Jesus, for his entire life on earth, has enjoyed communion with the Father. Why? He never sinned. Go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. And it talks about Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden until something happened. Eve ate the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. They knew they had sinned. They ran and hide, and that communion was broken. We actually talked about that last week because we talked about the shedding of the blood where God killed the animal to make the clothing to cover them. And we talked about a covenant, which is what we discussed in the context of the Lord's Supper. Jesus, his entire life, had communion with the Father. What is about to happen? Jesus is going to take upon himself the sin of the world. And you go, so? Because you and I have enough of that taint of sin that we're kind of used to it. Jesus had never suffered separation from his Father because of sin, like you and I have. And he knows what's coming. He knows that he's going to be separated from the Father because of the sin of the world. That's what is in his mind. So he gets his disciples and he brings all of his disciples to the garden. And then he takes a group of them, the inner circle, and brings them a little bit further into the garden. This happens to be the same group that he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with. Do you remember? He took them up there and Moses and Elijah showed up and the voice from heaven said, this is my wonderful son, do whatever he tells you to do. And they were in awe. I mean, this is cool. The greatest prophet, the greatest lawgiver, and Jesus, the three of them. And Peter says, let's make some tents. Let's just live here. And no, there was more work to be done. How different that trip is from this trip. In this trip, he's taking them into the garden. And this night is not going to end well. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. His comment is that the taking of the sins of the world is probably what killed him. 
Well, we can discuss that, but I wouldn't argue too much with it. So he brings the disciples in. He brings the inner circle in further, and he says, wait here, I'm going to pray. And then he goes off and he prays, and his prayer is, if there's a plan B, now would be a good time to bring it up. But, and here's the but, not my will, but your will be done. We could have, at this point, a long discussion about prayer in general. Number one, it's okay to ask God for whatever it is you want. It really is. Jesus didn't want to go through what he was going to have to go through. And that's okay. We can ask God to remove the disease. We can ask God to remove the difficult circumstances. We can ask God, but at the end of the day, we turn to God and say, but not my will, but your will be done. Which is back to the comment I made earlier. So what's the point of prayer? If at the end of the day, we're going to say, God, your will, not my will, be done. Well, one of the points of prayer is to align ourselves with the will of God. You see, prayer does impact what God does in the world today. Why? Because he allows that to happen. He says, pray, and people pray, and the prayers are answered. And that is a really amazing thing. The fact that the God of the universe would listen to our petitions and act on our request. That's really cool. But the other side of prayer is that it brings us in alignment with the will of God. At the end of the day, the prayer that will always be answered is, Thy will be done, not mine. And guess what? That means we are willing to acknowledge that God is God and that he probably has a better plan in mind than we have. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows what God has in mind. That's where we started this lesson. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be beaten. He knows that he's going to be executed. And he knows he's going to be raised from the dead. But he doesn't want to do it. But he knows that God's plan is best. The question is, are we willing to accept the second half of this prayer? Or do we just stop at the first half and say, God, this is what I want, and I don't care what your plan is. Ultimately, ultimately, our souls need to align themselves with the will of God. In order that, we can be transformed into the person that we are called to be. God is not just a genie that you rub the lamp and God pops out and does whatever you want. And when he doesn't do what you want, we get mad at him as if somehow he was not our genie, our slave, our servant, who exists to do our will. 
This is actually an interesting phenomenon. I would contend that if you go back, I don't know, 200 years and previous, people understood this. They understood that God is God and I'm not. We, in our modern individualistic age, have decided that I ought to be the center of the universe. I ought to be able to tell God what to do. And God, as my waiter, ought to meet my needs. And in that, with that attitude, there is no place for not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus is the perfect example of how we as human beings are called to live our lives. And that is a life of dependence upon the Father and a life of living according to the will of the Father. That's what Jesus is demonstrating for us. But he's also demonstrating we don't act like it doesn't hurt. We don't act like all this stuff that's going to happen to us doesn't hurt. We can pretend in some Pollyanna fashion that God is going to make everything roses as we go. Every one of us is old enough to know that's not true. The pain is real. We can pray to God regarding our pain, but at the end of the day we say, Thy will be done, not mine. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Kind of depressing. This is his inner circle. These are his best buds. And here he is, off praying, and they all fall asleep. Why did they do that? Well, they just had a good meal. It's late. It's dark. They've had a busy week. Lots of walking around. Lots of crowds. Lots of teaching. It gets dark. I would have probably done the same thing. They fall asleep. And he said to them, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. Huh? Well, that's the question. Her comment is they don't really believe what's going to happen. And I'll, I'll agree with that to a certain degree. We've had this discussion over and over. How much did they really understand? Did Judas really understand? Because he knew the game was up, and so he might as well get on the winning side. I don't know. We talked about that last week. How much did they know? All I do know is they're human beings. They had eaten a good meal. They were tired. Who knows what Jesus is struggling with? I think I'll go to sleep. But his comment is interesting. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Any of you want to argue about that? Any of you want to make a counterexample to that? Why in the world did God, the creator of the universe, make us such fallible people? Well, I know the answer to that question. Because he wanted us to learn to be dependent upon the Father. He didn't want us to be 
physically strong and morally and spiritually and every other way strong to the point that we would begin to think, ah, I can do it without God. Because you know what? Throughout history, humanity has thought they can do it without God. And Jesus and God looks at us and says, what? You think you can do it without God? You can't even stay awake. Whack! We live lives that are dependent upon God. So what does it say? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. Why? Because there's temptation out there and you're going to fall into it. I mean, let's start with the most obvious, simple example. You're tired. I'm tired all the time. You're tired. You're depressed. And some temptation comes along. A temptation that under normal circumstances you would have no difficulty with. You'd say, no, I'm not going to get angry with that person. But in your tired and weakened state, you go, what do you mean? And you explode. You've never done that, right? I'm the only person that's ever done that. Why? Because our flesh is weak. So does our flesh being weak excuse us? No. What are we called to do? Watch. What does it mean to watch? Be careful. Don't allow yourselves to get into that place. Watch your life. Acknowledge the fact that your flesh is weak. Acknowledge the fact that you're more likely to fall into temptation during certain circumstances. Be aware of it. Take provision to stop it. I've told you in here before, I listened to uh, the sermons from a singles ministry here in town that several of my kids attend. And the, the pastors that are preaching, you know, deal with, they're dealing with singles. And they're talking about, you know, people come up to him and say, I'm, I'm wrestling with pornography. Please help me. And they say to the guy, give me your cell phone. Okay, here. Okay, I'm going to throw it away. You can't do that then you're not struggling with pornography at all. You're just giving right into it. Ooh, ouch. We allow ourselves the temptations that, yes, under the best of circumstances we could deal with, but under the stressful situations, we're more likely to give in. So what do we do? We watch We are careful. We acknowledge our weakness. The moment you begin to think, I'm pretty cool, I'm pretty strong, nothing can tempt me, you're already over the cliff. So we watch. We enlist the help of others to help us deal with different situations. We do not allow the temptations to grow to the point. What do we do? We ask, we help, we pray. It is fascinating when we talked about the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, which is weird because the scripture says God doesn't tempt anyone. 
But we as feeble, weak human beings have a tendency just to drift into that direction. And what they're doing is praying, God, help me from going down that path. And Jesus is telling them the reason you're going down that path is because your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. God didn't mess up making us that way. He made us that way on purpose so that we would live a life of dependency on the Father. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He returns to the same theme. If there is no plan B, I'll do it. More about this in just a moment. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, and saying the same words again, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So you're a disciple. You've been sleeping well, (laughs) unfortunately. And he comes and tells you it's time to get going. The betrayer is here. I'm about to be handed over. The event that they all feared would happen is about to happen. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Who's coming to get him? Well, you have the priests are coming. They have their goons. They probably have some Roman soldiers with them. All of these people, torches in hand, remember, it's dark, right? It's dark. We live in a day with so many lights, we oftentimes have no clue what dark means. You know, dark to us means there's only two street lights on the street, and we worry about it. It was dark, torches, here comes the crowd going to surround. They're going to capture Jesus. They're going to capture anybody they can. They're there to take him. They're probably armed as well as they can be. The Roman soldiers carry their normal short sword, maybe a spear or two. The goons that work with the uh, priests probably have their clubs. They're ready to beat somebody. I keep talking about goons because I was a goon in Newsies. So anyway... Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. We had a discussion last week, and we had a discussion the week before about Judas. Why he did what he did. And all kinds of people today try to come up with more kind explanations of why Judas did what he did. And we're not going to fall for any of them. Maybe they're true. I don't know. What we do know is Judas walked up to Jesus as prearranged with the officials and said, The one I kiss is the one you want. Once again, we think this is odd. Because don't they have a photograph of him? Didn't they fax it to every police agency in town? 
Don't they have it on their smartphones? Don't they know who he is? Didn't they tag him? Didn't all the cameras find him? No. It's dark, remember? CNN was not there. I won't even go there. It was dark, it was confusing, there were lots of people. Somehow, somebody had to walk up and say, this is the guy you're after. And that's what Judas did. Now, we can have lots of discussion about the fact that he did it with a kiss. That he walked up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. He said, Rabbi. He said, you are the teacher, you're the boss, you're the... And he walked up and kissed him. And what did Jesus say to him? Friend, do what you must. We had a long discussion two weeks ago about the fact that Judas is accomplishing the will of the Father. But he is guilty for doing so. You go, how can that be? Well, we know the moral will of the Father. God has given us certain directions in life of how we are to live our lives. And somewhere on the top of the list is don't betray the Son of God to the Romans. I don't know if that's spelled out directly, but it's on the top of the list. Yet we also know from Romans chapter 8 that God uses our sins to accomplish His purpose. But that doesn't make our sins okay. It just means that God, in His infinite wisdom, arranges things to accomplish His goal. Judas is going to betray Him. The Jewish officials are going to lie, and they're going to hold a mock trial in order to get Him convicted. The Romans are going to murder Him just to get the Jews to leave Him alone. All of this is counter to the moral will of God. And God is using all of it to accomplish His purpose. Friend, do what you must. We're going to see next week that Judas is going to kill himself. But I have contended for the last two weeks, and I will continue to contend, that if like the other disciples who, having betrayed Jesus at the time of his death, did come back to the Sea of Galilee to see the risen Lord. I would contend that if Judas had done so, Jesus would have forgiven him. But he didn't. He didn't. Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Woohoo! Let's start the revolution. We know from the book of John that this is Peter. Peter, who has this natural tendency to act and think later. Here comes the crowd. He pulls out his sword probably a long knife of some sort. Remember, Jesus had made this comment in one of the other Gospels, if you've got a sword, get one, you might need it. Kind of a strange comment. But Peter had this little sword. Peter was a 
what by training? A fisherman. What were the Roman soldiers by training? Not fishermen. The Roman soldiers by training would take their sword and they would tell the fishermen, give me a fish, and the fishermen would give them a fish. What in the world did Peter think he was going to accomplish by pulling out his sword? Well, number one, he wanted to make sure that Jesus knew that when Jesus said, everybody's going to leave me, and Peter says, no, I'm not. Peter wanted Jesus to know, see, I'm with you to the end. I've got the sword. I've got the sword. I'm going to whack off the ear of a servant. Some servant of the high priest is standing there minding his own business and he gets his right ear chopped off. Now, Luke tells us, Luke tells us that Jesus put it back on, okay? So, the story ends well. But what did Peter think he was going to accomplish by doing this? Question, observation number one, he didn't think. Maybe he thought Jesus would rise up. Maybe he really thought he could start the revolution. You know, the shot heard round the world that started the American Revolution. He could have whacked somebody's ear off and everybody would have risen up to drive the Romans out, to throw out the high priest, to put Jesus on the throne... God's will would have been accomplished. None of this death, dying, execution, resurrection stuff. I know what needs to be done. I know the will of God. I know what God wants, and I'm going to start it, and I've got the sword to prove it. Question. How many times have we thought? We could talk historically, okay, But let's just talk about us. How many times have we thought that we could accomplish the will of God as we saw fit without bothering to consult God or Jesus or anybody else about whether it's the right thing to do? Jesus had told them what was going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise from the dead. That was the will of God. And they said, no, I got a better plan. I'm going to do the will of God even if I have to kill people to do it. Now, historically, we know that's happened repeatedly. It is a condemnation that many people make against Christianity in general. Now, my contention would be, well, religious folks have killed people and non-religious folks have killed people. Maybe the problem is not religion. Maybe it's the fact that people like killing people. We're all fallen human beings. We take our sinful nature and we apply it to whatever we're working on. But Peter thought he was going to do the will of God by starting the revolution. He thought he was going to do the right thing. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now that's an interesting sentence. I had a uh, Sunday school teacher years, 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 years ago who was a Vietnam veteran, combat veteran, 
And he made the comment that to him, this is not so much a curse as just an acknowledgement. I mean, it's just a fact. If you're involved in the sword, you will die by the sword. And he didn't see it as necessarily a bad thing. I would contend that what he's telling them is, if you're going to start a revolution, the revolution is going to be done with the sword, and that's going to be the end of it. But that's not the revolution I'm going to start. I've got something else in mind that doesn't involve the sword. But let's keep reading. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? We have had this discussion numerous times. In fact, last week I told you I'm going to tell you the same thing every lesson for the next two or three. And that is this. Sometimes if you read this historical account, you begin to think that Jesus is just being dragged along by historical forces that are beyond his control. He is captured in the garden. He is dragged before Caiaphas. He is dragged before the Romans. He is beaten by the Roman soldiers. He is out of control. He has no control over this situation. And that isn't true. He said, I give up my life. Jesus, at any point of the story, could have said, enough. And that would have been the end of it. He says, the Father could have sent 12 legions of angels. A legion, a Roman legion, was a self-contained unit of Roman soldiers that numbered at this time probably about 6,000 guys. 6,000 well-trained killing machines. And a legion was an awesome thing that you didn't want to mess with. So... The Father could have sent down 12 legions, 12 times 6, 72,000 angels if all I did was ask. I have this vision, okay? This is weird. This is just speculation on my part. The angels are up in heaven watching what's happening. They're sitting there ticked off. They've got their swords in their hand. They're ready to go the moment the Father says, go. Because they see what's happening to the Son of God. And Jesus says, all I have to do is say, Dad, take care of this. And I've made this comment in here before. 72,000 angels. How many angels would it have taken to free Jesus in the garden against the guards and against the Roman soldiers, one on a bad day. One drunk angel. Are there such things? On a bad day, it would have taken one. What would have happened if 72 thousand angels descended on Jerusalem at this point. Michael could have handled it. Any of them could have had it. 
Clarence could have handled it. That's a strange reference. What would have happened as Aslan in The Lord of the Rings says repeatedly, it is not for men to know what might have been. But let me tell you what might have been. Jesus says, enough of this. And the angels descend. I mean, every Roman in the universe is killed. Every bad guy in the universe is killed. And Jesus is taken back where he should have been. God would still have been God. God would still have been holy. God would still have been righteous. God would still have been just. Every attribute of God would still have been in place. And you and I would die in our sins. Don't think that it would have taken anything away from God. God would still have been God, but you and I would have been lost. All I have to do is nod, and 72,000 angels are here. And guess what? It would have been a one-sided battle. But he didn't do that. Why not? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Why did Jesus die? Because he just felt like it? Because it seemed like an interesting thing to do one weekend? No. He did it to pay the penalty for our sin. Throughout this week, the week that is being described here, they've been celebrating the Passover, the blood that provided the safety from the angel of death. And Jesus told them last week, well, three hours ago, in our term last week, Jesus told them, this is my blood that is the blood of the new covenant. He told the Father, God, if there's a plan B, I'm all on board, but I'm going to do it. If this is the cup that I have to drink, this cup of suffering and pain, and the wrath of God, that's what I'm going to do on behalf of us. And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this time, but all this taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. You go, how could they do that? Remember what I said? It's dark. So, here's Judas. Judas walks up to Jesus. He kisses him. All the guards surround him. It's dark. The disciples just start to back off. They back off, and then they turn and run. Why did they do that? These were Roman soldiers. The game was over. They were terrified. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. 
that we're going to talk about at length after the resurrection, but I'll let you in on the secret right now. There are those who would have us believe that Jesus died and he stayed dead. And then the disciples, brave, gutsy men that they were, got together and they created this thing that today we call Christianity. They created this story that he was raised from the dead. They created this story that he had done all these miracles. They created this story that after being raised from the dead, he was taken up into heaven. And they created Christianity. It's absurd to think that. These were fishermen, a tax collector, various miscellaneous working stiffs, and their teacher was just taken, and they all ran away. This would have been the end of Christianity, except for this little thing called the resurrection that's going to happen in a few days. Chuck Colson, you remember who he was. He was one of Nixon's hatchet men, caught up in the Watergate, did time in prison, found Christ, formed uh, prison fellowship, did wonderful ministry to prison. And in his biography, talking about his conversion, he uses this story because he says, here we were, very intelligent, very well-trained attorneys, And all we had to do was keep our mouth shut and all this Watergate stuff would have blown over. We couldn't do it for three days. Somebody spilled the beans because we were scared. We were scared about losing our reputation. We were scared about doing time in prison. We were terrified. And Chuck Colson says, and yet we're supposed to believe that these ignorant fishermen went to the death saying Jesus raised from the dead All it would have taken is a couple of them to say, eh, we just made it all up one night in Jerusalem while we were having some drinks and we made the whole thing up. But they didn't do it. At the point of danger, they all fled. Just like Jesus had told them. But remember what he also told them. You're going to flee. But when it's all over, come find me. That's the miracle. I tell you what I would have done if I were Jesus. I'm resurrected from the dead. I'd have found 12 better guys. (laughs) I mean, let's face it. Really, they all left. I would have found 12 smarter people, stronger people. Put an ad in the newspaper. I don't know. And that is the miracle of the forgiveness that God has for us. You think, gosh, there was a time in my life where I turned my back on Christ. I went following after something else. God will never, ever, ever forgive me. As long as there's breath in our lungs, we can repent and God will forgive us. All they had to do was come to the Sea of Galilee when it was all over. Day after day, I sat in the temple. He's telling the religious leaders, 
okay? Every day you saw me, every day I was out in public, every day I was teaching, and you come get me like a robber? Why? Well, he knows the answer to that, because the religious leaders knew the answer to that. Why did they not take him during the day? Well, it tells us earlier. They didn't do it because they were scared of the people. They had to get him alone so that they could deal with him. They had to get him separated from the crowd because they needed to manipulate the crowd. The next time the crowd's going to show up, the crowd's going to say, crucify him. It may have been a different crowd. We don't ever know. I've told you before, it always was kind of weird to me. When I was growing up, we used to do a Christmas pageant, which was the whole life of Christ. And we had the crowd scenes going, Hosanna, Hosanna, as Jesus walks in. And then we had the crowds going, kill him, kill him, two scenes later. And it's the same people because, well, we only had one crowd. (laughs) In reality, the religious leaders are going to probably drag up all the people who they can control and they're going to say, kill him, kill him. But there was a group of the population that was interested in what Jesus was doing. And the religious leaders knew we had to take him when nobody was around. That's why they did what they did. So Jesus is not surprised. He's just scolding them. He's telling them, I know why you're doing what you're doing. So... From there, we move to the trial itself. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So what's the point of all of this? What is the point of today's lesson? Number one, I've said it this week, I said it last week, and I said it the week before. Jesus is in control of the situation. Now, he is in control of it by stating that he's going to do the will of the Father. So the Father is in control of it because Jesus is submitting to the will of the Father. The Father is in control and He's doing it for you and for me. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that Jesus is not a pawn on the stage of life. Jesus is the guy that created the chessboard. And everything that happens... He's in control of. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on our behalf. Thank you that he was willing to drink the cup. And thank you that it is not our will, but your will. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.